Or you guys can turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3. As you turn there, we did want to let any of you who are graduating know that we would love to continue to be a resource for you. We would love to be a help for you wherever you're headed next as you finish up here at A&M. So if you'd like to stay in touch with us and, and let us stay in touch with you, if you just want to grab your cell phone real quick and text the word alumni to 95577, we'll hit you back for your name and email address and then we will send you updates and we'll stay in touch with you and give you resources for whatever city you're headed to or whatever you have next in life. So we'd love to stay connected with you. This morning we're going to continue to talk through Genesis and its implications to us in the New Testament era. And in this morning, in particular, we're going to look at this thing called the church and how the church fits in with Genesis. Before we do, though, a little story. Uh, One of my fondest memories growing up was learning how to body surf in Galveston. And I know some of you think in Galveston, it's no Oahu, it's no Malibu. No, it's not. But for a little boy growing up in Houston, Galveston was all I needed. It was amazing. And, And I remember really distinctly going out to Galveston and being taught by my uncle how to body surf. So he walked you through the steps. First thing, you had to double knot your swimsuit because you'll lose it in the surf if you don't. So you double knot your swimsuit and then you, you swim out to a sandbar where you can just barely touch your toes and then you turn around and you watch the waves come in until there's a wave of appropriate size. And then at just the right moment, when it's just a little bit behind you, you kick off and you swim for all your worth towards the shore. And if you do it just right, then you will feel that wave come around you and lift you up and you go rigid with your back and put your hands forward and it will carry you maybe all the way to the shore. Really exciting thing was exhilarating because as a little boy and it's incredibly exhilarating to become part of something that's much bigger and more powerful than you I was just a tiny little kid this wave was much bigger than me much more powerful than me it began who knows how far out in the ocean it was moving forward was going to crash on the beach with or without me there's nothing I could do to stop it but if I rode it just right it would be the ride of my life be exhilarating incredibly fun the reason that I tell you that story is because whether you realize it or not, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are part of something much bigger and more powerful than you. You're part of Jesus' church. And Jesus' church is a lot like that wave. It's far bigger than us. It started long before us. It will keep marching forward after us. But if you'll learn how to fit into it, it will give you the ride of your life. There is nothing more satisfying or more fulfilling than discovering how you can be part of God's eternal plan to bless the nations through the church of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The problem for many of us is that as we talk about this thing called the church, we are held up by inaccurate and inadequate definitions of the word. What does the church mean? A lot of people are unclear about this. If you go ask, common person, what does the word church mean to you? Well, uh, people will say, well, the church, that's where you gather with other people to sing on Sunday morning. Or the, the church, it's that ornate building where people gather to practice the Christian religion. Or the church, it's a particular denomination you belong to, like the Baptists or the Methodists or the Lutherans. Well, all of these definitions that people will commonly give for a church All of these are too small. All of these are are way too small. And and if you have a small definition of the church like any of these, then, well, it's not that great a thing to belong to. It's not that big a thing. It's not that amazing 
of a thing. So this morning what I want to do is I want to work with you to clear up these common misconceptions about the church that make it seem too small, too insignificant, not worth your time outside of Sunday morning. I want to clear up those misconceptions and and give you a new picture of the church, a, a bigger picture that helps you to see how grand it is, how great it is, and what a privilege it is to belong to this thing that God calls his church. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to study what it means to be part of the the church of Jesus Christ. And and to help us get started, I'm going to give you a definition that we'll work with. This is a theological definition. If you opened a theology book, this is what you would see for a definition of the word church. The church, technically speaking, it is the worldwide body of believers in Christ who are united by the Holy Spirit. So what is the church? Simple definition. It's, it's every person on the planet who has trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal life. They are united together in one body through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So that's the definition of the church, but it's not real inspiring, not, not real exciting. It doesn't help you see how big, how great, how wonderful it is to belong to the church. So what I want to do this morning is I want to add to this definition. I want to add four words. Four words that describe the church, four words that will help you to wrap your mind around how great, around how amazing this thing called the church is. All four words are are meant to reflect how the church is both new and ancient. It's kind of the weird thing about the church. It's both new, it's relatively new in the plan of God, but it's also ancient. The roots of this thing we're doing this morning go all the way back to the book of Genesis that we've been studying this year, the promises and problems of Genesis. That's that's where we trace the church all the way back. So I'm gonna give you four words that will help you to wrap your minds around this incredible thing called the church and help you see what a privilege it is to fit into the church, to participate in the church, to belong to the church. So let's jump right in. First word that I want to give you to help you understand what this thing called the church is. The church is a new ancient mystery. A new ancient mystery. Key word, first word, mystery. I want you to look with me at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, and we'll begin in verse 3. Let's see what what we mean by this idea of the church as a mystery. Look with me in verse 3. Paul says, By revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister." according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. In this passage, Paul's talking about the church. He says there in verse 10, and there's a lot of theology here. It's a really thick passage. I can't unpack all that this morning, but I do want to point out two things to you, two things I want you to notice. First, one that I want you to see is verse 11. The church is part of God's 
eternal purpose, his eternal plan for the world. What that means is that all the way back in Genesis, all the way back in Genesis 1, all the way back when God created the heavens and the earth, he had a plan that included us this morning. A plan for this new community, this church, this body of Jews and Gentiles united together in the Holy Spirit. God planned this from eternity past, but the second thing I want you to notice from this passage is that key word that's repeated three times, it was a mystery. It was a mystery, and Paul defines mystery in verse 5. He says, in other generations, it was not made known to the sons of men. In the Old Testament, they did not know about the church. God had not revealed it to them yet. It was a mystery that was hidden in the mind of God, Paul says. God was the only one who knew about it. So the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. What does that mean to you? Well, there's a couple couple things. Uh, First, a theological meaning. First thing that that matters to you. Um, When you read the Bible, you need to understand because the church was a mystery, you will not find the church in the Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament, you won't see the church there. Why? Well, what is it that binds us together in the church? What is is the glue that, that unites us together in this body? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wasn't given in the Old Testament. When was the Holy Spirit given to the human race? Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. That chapter in your Bible is like the turning of the times. It's a new era in human history. It's the moment when God gives the Holy Spirit. That was day number one of the church. That's when the church began. There, There wasn't a church in the Old Testament. There was only Israel, the genetic descendants of Abraham that we call the Jews or the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel was God's Old Testament people. The church is God's New Testament people, and the two are distinct. Right now, today, God is working through the church, this body of Jews and Gentiles united together in the Holy Spirit. He's at work in the world through the church. In the future, God will get back to working through the nation of Israel. Matt's going to talk about that next week, God's future for the nation of Israel. But Israel and the church are distinct, two separate groups. Church hasn't replaced Israel, they are distinct. Israel is God's Old Testament people. The church is God's New Testament people. And what you may not realize is that that distinction between Israel and the church is actually what drives a lot of the differences that you see at Grace Bible Church compared to other churches. So why don't we baptize infants at Grace Bible Church whereas Presbyterians do? Well, because we believe that the church and Israel are distinct and they do not. Why do we not have a plaque of the Ten Commandments up on the wall? A lot of churches do. Well, because we believe that the church in Israel are distinct. The Ten Commandments was their law, not our law. Why do we believe that there is a literal future for the nation of Israel on earth? Well, because we believe that church and Israel are distinct. Other churches, some other churches don't. We believe there's still a prophetic future for the nation of Israel because they remain a distinct part of God's plan. So this theological distinction between Israel and the church, it actually drives a lot of the things that you see here practiced at our church. If you want to talk about any more of that this morning, come talk to me afterwards. I can't unpack all of that today. But just so you know, that distinction is huge. We believe that the church and Israel are distinct. Israel was God's Old Testament people. The church is God's New Testament people. You won't find the church in the Old Testament. So that's the theological meaning. But what does it mean practically speaking to you? The fact that the church was a mystery hidden in the mind of God, how does that affect your life, practically speaking? Well, what it means is that you have a God who loves to surprise you. 
You have a God who loves to surprise the human race with, with new depths of, of love and, and of mercy. I, I love to think about God throughout the Old Testament, sitting in heaven, looking down at earth, and, and the nation of Israel just kept blowing it year after year after year, and God looked down with a twinkle in his eye and thought to himself, you just wait. You just wait for this incredible thing that I have in store for humanity that you don't even know about yet. This thing called the church, Jew and Gentile, united through love in Jesus Christ. I'm not telling you yet, but I'm going to tell you soon. I just wait till you see my love and grace displayed through the church. They knew nothing about it. It was hidden as a mystery in God. God loves to surprise us with new depths of love and grace. And that reality should, should create a couple things in us. First of all, it should create humility. Create humility. Here we are at a Bible church. Bible churches are kind of known for being places where people think they understand the Bible completely. We know it from cover to cover. We have a pretty good understanding of what's coming in the future. We've even drawn diagrams of it. So we, we know what God's doing. And, and this reality that a church was a mystery, it, it should humble us. It should remind us, well, we know a little bit about the future. We got glimpses of it, little bits of it. But there's a ton we don't know yet. We're just like the Israelites in the Old Testament who had no idea what love and grace God had in store for them through the church. Who knows what God has in store for us in the future? We don't have it all figured out. That should humble us. That's what led Paul in Romans 11 to say, oh, the depths of both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. We don't have it all figured out yet. The church was a mystery to them. Who knows what is a mystery yet to us? That should humble us, and it should also excite us. It's exciting to think about the reality that you don't have everything figured out yet. It's exciting to think about the fact that you have a God who has surprises of grace and surprises of blessing in store for you in the future that he hasn't even told you about yet. Because we have a God who loves to surprise us with with new depths of love and grace, what that means is that whatever you know about your future, it will be better than you expect. It'll be better than what you expect because there's a lot of grace, a lot of love that God hasn't revealed yet. So whatever you have figured out, it will be better than you realize. And that's an exciting thing to think about. God loves to surprise us with new depths of love and grace, just like he did when he brought the church. So the first word when you think about the church that I I want you to think about is the word mystery. It was a mystery hidden in the mind of God. They didn't know about it in the Old Testament. He's revealed it now to us. Second key word that I want you to think about when you think about the church. The church is a new ancient family. A new ancient family. Let me rehearse a little history for you from the book of Genesis that we've been talking about this year. You'll recall back in Genesis 10, all of humanity was one big family. We were all united together in rebellion. We're all united together in rebellion against God. We built a tower, really tall tower. God didn't like that. And so God came down and he confused our languages and that divided us into separate groups, separate nations, separate families. And then once God had divided us up, he chose one man, a man named Abraham, And he made incredible promises to that man. He promised him land. He promised him descendants. He promised him prosperity and victory. He made incredible promises to that man. And then he sealed those promises into an eternal irrevocable covenant. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. It's like the most important thing in your your Bible and in the flow of of biblical history. So the Abrahamic covenant. and And then God gave the Abrahamic covenant. And then for the rest of the book of Genesis, God narrowed the people who got to participate in the covenant. 
So at first, it's all of Abraham's family, but then it's not all of his family, it's just those through Isaac. But then it's not even all those through Isaac, it's only those through Jacob. So throughout Genesis, it narrows, God narrows the participants in the covenant so that by the end of the book of Genesis, all of humanity can be divided into just two groups, right? Just two groups. First group, the group of people to whom the covenant promises belong. That's the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, whom we call the Jews, the nation of Israel. The covenant of promise belonged to them. That's the first group. Second group, everybody else. Everybody who's not a Jew. Everybody who's not a descendant of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob to whom the covenant of promise does not belong. It's not ours. We call ourselves the Gentiles. You got the Jews who are part of the family of promise and the Gentiles who are not. That's what we pick up in Ephesians chapter two. Look at Ephesians two. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11, Paul describes what the world was like for us who are not Jews, us Gentiles, before the coming of the church. Look with me, Ephesians 2, verse 11. He says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, that is everyone who's not a Jew, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, that's the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So before the coming of the church, we who are Gentiles, which I'm assuming is most of us in this room, were excluded from the family of promise. We were on the outside looking in. But then God did something new. God sent his son, the perfect descendant of Abraham, to die for our sins, rise from the dead, and tear down that wall that divided Jew from Gentile. Pick it up in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And he, verse 17, jump to verse 17, and he, that is Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Of God's family, everyone who is in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike, are part of one big family, one big house, the house of God. Paul puts it this way in the book of Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith, who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life, who are the sons of Abraham. Or in verse 29, at the end of the chapter, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. A long time ago when I was growing up in a little Bible church in Tomball, Texas, we used to sing a song in Sunday school. I don't know if any of you heard this, this song before. It goes something like this. Abraham, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. Now that sounds goofy, but it's not. It's true and it's incredibly significant to every person in this room who's not a Jew, myself included. Because before Jesus and before his church, we were on the outside looking in. We were excluded from the family of promise. But now through Jesus, through Abraham's one perfect ultimate descendant, we have been brought into the family. So we are literally, truly sons of Abraham. Now, for you ladies in the room, you may be wondering, why does Paul not say sons and daughters of Abraham? Reason is because in the ancient world, sons always got more inheritance than daughters. 
That's how the ancient world worked. Paul wants you to understand that's not how God works. God's family, we're all sons. Male and female alike, we all share the same blessings, the same privileges in the family of God. So through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith in Abraham's one ultimate descendant, all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, have been brought together in one new family, the new ancient family of Abraham, united in faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what does that theological reality mean to you? What's the significance of that? Well, a couple things. First of all, it means that when you read the book of Genesis, you are reading your history. Genesis is the history, it's the story of your family, this new family that you have been brought into. It's not some academic book, it's not some theological book that, so that you, you read so you understand ancient history. It is your history, the history of the family that you now belong to through faith in Jesus Christ. So Genesis, it's your history. Second thing that this means for us is that you are not a second class member of God's family. I don't know about you, but sometimes I read the Old Testament, and especially before I study this, I used to feel like God likes us Gentiles. He's okay with us Gentiles, but he really loves the Jews. They're his favorite people. They're first class, we're second class, but no, that's not true. The church proves it. God always loves all people, Jew and Gentile alike, with infinite, unconditional love. The church is his proof, Jew and Gentile brought together in one family, on the same terms, enjoying the same love, the same blessings, the same privileges. That's the beauty of, a, of the church. It, it unites all of us together into one new ancient family of Abraham, loved and blessed by God. So that's the second key word I want to give you as you think about the church. We are a family. Third word that I want to give you as you think about the church this morning. The church is a new ancient humanity. New ancient humanity, new ancient human race. When you think about the human race as it exists on our planet today, just think about Humanity spread over all this planet today. What word would you use to describe the human race as it exists today? The word I would use is divided. Divided, that's the nature of the human race on our planet. We are divided into every possible conceivable group. We're divided into different nations. You belong to that nation, I belong to this nation. We're divided into different races, into different ethnicities, into different language groups, different genders, different classes. We're divided by politics. Some are Republicans, some are Democrats. You got Libertarians, you got Green Party. We're divided into different demographics. You got Gen X, Gen Y, you got the Millennials, you got Baby Boomers. We're divided into all of these different groups. That division began back at the Tower of Babel. God divided the human race into different languages, and since Babel, we have just divided ourselves into ever more groups. Now we are so parsed, we are so separated and divided, you can't even count how many divisions there are that separate human beings. And all of those separations between human beings, they feed into competition between groups. That's how division always works. Division plays to the fear and selfishness that are endemic to the human race. So The moment that you tell me that I'm part of group A and you're part of group B, the moment you divide yourself from me, what am I going to begin thinking about? How to protect and prosper my group over your group. Because that's how the human heart works. Whenever you divide us, we get selfish, we get fearful about all other groups. So when you think about the human race, you think about the word divided. That's really what's driven the history of the human race on the planet Earth. Divided groups at war with one another. That's a human race that exists today. But now God has begun to do something incredibly new. 
God has begun to do something new. He is creating a new human race, a, a new humanity that is not like the human race on earth today. We are not divided, we are united together. God is creating a new humanity. Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter three, verse 28, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one in Christ Jesus. All the things that, that divide the human race as it exists today, none of them matter because in the church we are all brought into one new human race. One new human race. So you think about Babel. At Babel we went from one to many. In the church we do the opposite. We go from many to one. The church is God's solution to the curse of Babel. He is reuniting, reconstituting human beings as a new human race united together in love for Jesus Christ. So when you think about the church, this this new humanity, what you need to understand is that this new humanity that God is building around faith in Jesus Christ, it transcends all the boundaries, all the walls that separate the human race. It transcends and tears down those walls. So the church, it, it transcends and tears down the walls of nationality. There is no American church. There is no German church. There is no Chinese church. There's only the church called from among every nation on earth. That's why here at at Grace Bible Church, we don't have an American flag on the stage. Some churches do. That's fine. Nothing inherently wrong with that. We don't have an American flag on on the stage because we want to say that here in this place, there is no favored nation status. There is no allegiance to a nation in this place. We are all here because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ, which transcends and tears down national allegiances. It's so much bigger than any national allegiance. And practically speaking, what I think that means for us is that we need to be careful in our minds to separate our allegiance to our nation from our allegiance to Jesus Christ. If if you're here and you're American, like, like me, man, we're blessed. What a great nation to belong to. But we need to remember... Our primary identity is not American. Our our source of security is not America. Our source of hope is not America. It's, It's God's church in Jesus Christ. That's where my identity comes from. That's where my security comes from. That's what makes me me. And what that means is that I have more in common with a Chinese believer than I do with an American unbeliever. Because my national identity is so much smaller than my identity in Jesus' church. So the church, it transcends and tears down the walls of nationality that divide us. Second, it it transcends and tears down the walls of of gender and race and class that, that separate us. The church transcends all of these things that become divisions between human beings. That's why Paul said what he said in Galatians 3.28. In Christ, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. Now, those distinctions still mean something, but they don't separate us anymore. We are one in Christ. What that means, very practically speaking, this should be obvious, but, but there is no room in the church for racism or bigotry or discrimination uh, or, or, or anything that would separate us or make my group seem better than your group. There's no room in in the Christian church. There's no room in the Christian heart for derogatory language or derogatory jokes towards other gender, other classes, other races. No room at all for that. 
Because we are all one in Christ. We all come to Jesus on equal terms, on our knees, to enjoy the same blessings and the same privileges as anyone else. So we are all one in Christ. His, his church transcends all of the divisions of gender and race and class that divide our world. And, and you see that most clearly, actually, in one of the shortest books of the Bible. The book of Philemon, which probably you, you may not have ever studied. It's one page. It's not even multiple chapters. And the book of Philemon, just to review it for you in a moment, and then I'll show you a part of it. The book of Philemon, it's Paul writing to a guy named Philemon, who was a Christian who owned a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus ran away from home. He left his master, ran away, and then met Paul, and Paul led him to Christ. But Paul knows in the Roman Empire of that time period, Onesimus had to go back. He was required by law to go back. But Paul doesn't want to send him empty-handed, and so he writes this short little letter, the letter to Philemon. And as we read this letter about Philemon and his slave Onesimus, what we want Paul to say is, Philemon, set your slave free, because we hate slavery. One was set his slave free. But as you read the letter, what you come to realize is that setting your slaves free was not enough for Paul. That didn't go far enough. Because if all Philemon did was grudgingly set Onesimus free, then there would still be division between them. They'd be two different classes, You got the former master and the former slave. That's not okay with Paul. He's not just looking for emancipation. He's looking for something bigger, something greater. And you you get that right in the middle of the book, verses 15 to 18. Paul says, for perhaps he, that is Onesimus, your slave, was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. What Paul is saying is, Philemon, it's not enough to just set him free. It's not enough to just no longer call him a slave. What I want you to do is accept him into your home as your beloved brother, absolutely equal to you on, in every way. Accept him as you would accept me. That was an incredibly radical thing to say. Here's Onesimus, a slave. He is lowest on the social ladder that you could go in that time period. Here's Paul, a grand apostle, educated, eminent. And yet Paul says, accept him as if it was me. We are on the same terms. A slave and I are on the same rung of this new humanity called the church. Accept him as you would accept me. And whatever he owes you, whatever financial burden, just charge it to me. I'll pay whatever it costs to bring reconciliation to the two of you so that you can be beloved brothers with one another. When you look at what Paul is doing in Philemon, what you come to understand is that for God, it is not enough to simply set slaves free. What we are called to do is draw them into our family as our beloved brothers and sisters. Paul and God want, want reconciliation. That's so much bigger than emancipation. That's a radical thing. Think about this world. The best that the human race can do today is bring about toleration for other groups. You're really doing good if you can tolerate other groups, not be mean to them, but but tolerate them. God is not satisfied with toleration. It's not nearly enough for God, for different groups to tolerate one another. What God wants is reconciliation, that different groups would be reunited as one in love, would be brought together in one family, united in love for Jesus Christ. So that that means, for you practically speaking, is you should fight racism, sexism, discrimination, elitism, any of that that you see anywhere in society, you should fight it, but then you should go further. 
Because it's not enough to just tolerate and respect those other groups. You need to be reconciled with those other groups and welcome them with open hands and love as your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what God is is calling us to do, to be a new family, a new humanity that welcomes everyone with open arms of love. Okay, so we are a, a new humanity and that transcends the barriers of gender and race and class. Third thing that the church transcends, it transcends political parties. Now let me explain that for a moment. There are some political positions on certain issues that line up better with scripture than other positions and you should vote for the positions that line up best with scripture. That's what it means to be a, a wise citizen of the United States. You should vote for those things that are more biblical but what we're trying to say is that the church itself is not owned or beholden by any particular political party. Church is not Republican. Church is not Democrat. Church is not libertarian or liberal or conservative because the church transcends politics. The church stands above politics. Why? Why does the church transcend politics? Because what God wants to accomplish through the church, God's mission for the church, cannot be accomplished through politics. God is not looking to improve the political discourse in America. That's not his goal for the church. What does God want to do through the church? He wants to create a new human race on earth united together around faith in Jesus Christ and politics can't do anything for that. So what does that mean practically speaking? Well, vote biblically, but as you participate in the politics of this nation, remember that politics cannot accomplish the mission that God has called the church to do and so don't let your politics get in the way of what really matters. If your friends, if your coworkers, if your, if your fellow students, your classmates, if they know more about your politics than about your allegiance to Jesus Christ, that's not good. Because politics are not nearly as important as our faith in Jesus Christ and our participation in his church. The church transcends and tears down the barriers of politics. Finally, it transcends and tears down the barriers of denominations. When we think about the church, we, we often think about it in denominational terms. So those guys over there, they're Baptists, and then we have the Methodists over here, and we have some Presbyterians over here, and then we have us who are non-denominational, which is really a joke because as soon as you declare yourself non-denominational, you've just made yourself a really tiny little denomination. So <laughs> we have all these different denominations everywhere. What God wants us to understand is that his church transcends denominations. We are all one family with every single person on this planet who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Practically speaking, what that means is that I have brothers and sisters who are Roman Catholic, who are Methodist, who are Presbyterian, who are Baptist, who are Anglican, who are Quaker. I have brothers and sisters from all denominations. Anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life is my brother and sister. We are part of one family. Now, why do we have denominations? Well, we have them because we haven't figured everything out yet. And we're still debating a lot of stuff and and trying to drive each other to be more biblical. And so denominations are okay so long as you remember that you are one family with every person on earth who's trusted in Jesus regardless of denominational affiliation. Let's get practical. What does that mean for you? Well, what that means is that in class or at work or in your neighborhood, when you see a Baptist 
or a Methodist or a Presbyterian who agrees with you that you find eternal life through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, if they believe the gospel with you, then you share enough in common to stand arm in arm with that person to share the gospel with other people. What it means for you, practically speaking, is that you need to be looking for opportunities to unite together with our brothers and sisters in other denominations to accomplish the mission that God has called his church to do. So look for places at, at your work, at, in, in school, wherever you might be, in your neighborhood, to partner with believers in other denominations to share the gospel. And you can keep talking and debating the other stuff, that's good. But keep the gospel first, unite together around that. Because the church transcends denominational lines. The church is a new humanity. It transcends and tears down all the walls that divide the human race because God is reconstituting us as one new human race united around love for Jesus Christ. So that's the third word that I wanted to give you. Finally, the fourth word as you think about what the church is. The church is a new ancient calling. A new ancient calling. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As you turn there, I'll remind you of what God did in Genesis chapter 12. When God called this man, Abraham, and he blessed him with, with land and descendants and prosperity and victory, all these incredible blessings, what's the last thing that God said to Abraham in Genesis 12? Right at the end of verse 3, he said, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So why did God bless Abraham? So that Abraham could enjoy a nice life? No. God blessed Abraham so that Abraham could be a blessing to everyone else. And that's actually how blessing works throughout the Bible, from cover to cover. Every time God blesses a person, he's blessing that person so that that person can turn around and be a blessing to someone else. That's how blessing works all through the Bible and in your life as well. You are blessed so you can be a blessing to others. Blessing is never meant just for your selfish enjoyment. It's never meant just to make your life more comfortable. It's meant to be something that you share with others. You are blessed to be a blessing. That's why God blessed you. So Paul gets into the details in 2 Corinthians 5. He he tells you exactly how God has blessed you and how you can take that blessing and share it with others. So look with me, 2 Corinthians 5, we'll start in verse 17. It says, starting in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. What is Paul saying? Well, verse 17, he's telling you what's happened to you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then God has reconciled you to himself through Jesus. He has made you a new creature, a new creation who is no longer his enemy. Now you are part of his family. But notice the transition in verse 18. God reconciled you, and then what did he do? He gave you a job. He gave you a job. On that day when you accepted the gospel, whenever that was, whenever that, in your testimony, that moment when you accepted Jesus, on that day, not only did you get saved, which is really good, but God also gave you a job, starting on that day, ending when you die. 
Your job, no matter your career, engineer, lawyer, homemaker, teacher, whatever your career is, your job as a follower of Jesus Christ, which started on the day you were saved, was to be Jesus' ambassador to the world. Telling the world this good news of reconciliation that, that there's a God who loves them so much that he sent his son to die for them and rise from the dead so they could become part of this new family called the church. You have a job on earth. You have been blessed by God so you can be a blessing to everyone else. You've been reconciled so you can tell others about the reconciliation that they can have through Jesus Christ. Practically speaking, what that means is that your job for the rest of your life is to tell everyone who will listen the good news that eternal life and forgiveness of sins are available through Jesus Christ. That is your job. That's your part to play in this thing called the church. Your fit in this church is to be an ambassador wherever God sends you. Whatever city, whatever country, whatever place, you are Jesus' ambassador. So let me end with a couple questions. The first and And really the most important is just to ask yourself, has there been a moment in your life where you were reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ? Was there some moment in your life where you realized that you can't earn God's love, you can't earn your way into his family, you can't earn eternal life or heaven, you need it as a free gift, you need God to provide it? Is there some moment when you chose to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life as a free gift, not something you work for, absolutely free? If you've not reached that moment yet, if there's something keeping you back from believing that Jesus died from your sins and rose from the dead so you could have eternal life, please come talk to me. Come talk to someone else here this morning. That's the most important thing. That's how you become part of the church. You're not part of anything we've talked about today until you choose to trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Now, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus for eternal life, the question that that I leave you with is that you've been blessed by God, so who can you be a blessing to this week? That's why God blessed you. Not just so you can enjoy life or be more comfortable while you await heaven. That's not what blessing's for. You are blessed so you could turn around and be a blessing to someone else. So I want you to think of a name. Who is it in your life? In your class, at work, in your neighborhood, at home? Who are you gonna be a blessing to this week? Who are you gonna show the love of Christ? Who are you gonna sacrificially serve? Who are you gonna tell the good news that there's a God who loves them? Who will you be a blessing to this week? It may be someone nearby. It may be someone far away. Maybe there's no one that comes to your mind in particular. And so maybe what God is calling you to do this week is is to give to someone who is up here on the stage who we prayed for, who's getting ready to take the gospel overseas. Somebody maybe who wasn't here that you know who's being called by God to take the gospel overseas this summer to be part of God's work of telling the nations about Jesus. Can you give to them financially? Can you pray for them? Can you partner with them in this work of reconciling the world to Jesus Christ? Who can you bless this week? That's why God blessed you. Turn around and look for somebody who you can be a blessing to. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you have blessed us infinitely beyond anything that we deserve. You have blessed us with life. You've blessed us with breath. But best of all, you've blessed us with your son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. We thank you that Jesus died for us and rose from the dead so that we could become part of, of this new family, of this new humanity you call the church. We thank you for the privilege of belonging to the body of Jesus Christ that that unites us all together 
in one body across all the things that separate us. And, and Father, we pray that for each of us here today who are followers of Jesus Christ, we pray that you would grow us in love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, even those who speak differently than us, even those who look differently than us, even those of different denominations, different nations, different classes. We pray that you would unite us together in sacrificial love. We pray that this week, Lord, that, that we would be agents of reconciliation, that we would be your ambassadors to those who are near and those who are far, telling everyone who will listen the good news that there is a God who loves them, that there is a way for them to be saved, to be forgiven, and to join this new family called the church. I pray, Father, that we would understand and believe that it is a privilege to belong to your son's church. I pray that we would, would cherish the church and serve the church and give ourselves to your church and to your mission for the church. We thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you so much for your son who made it all possible. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.